0: Hi, I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors. Who are also working theater music directors.
1: Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy. And why you should check them
0: out. If you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, John. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's May. Uh, We're in the middle of... Just this magical sense of thunderstorms in the area, which is knocking all the pollen out of the air. I can breathe again. The school year is coming to a close, so my wife will be home for the summer soon. And we are talking about one of my most absolute, most favorite shows ever today.
1: That's right.
0: A lot of fanboying today. I am not going to lie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Also a favorite of mine, and I think a a strong close to this season. So shall we get into it?
0: Before we get into it, I can do this because we're not recording months in advance. Mm -hmm. Turns out I'm a prophet. Who knew? I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. Not one week ago, Actually, six days ago, we recorded a Phantom of the Opera podcast that was released this past Wednesday. At which point I said I made a quip just off the cuff, like, it's interesting because with Phantom of the Opera closing, we have one only one show on Broadway. Oh, but wait, we may not by the time this airs. And so the same day that our Phantom of the Opera podcast was released to the universe the producers of Bad Cinderella announced that at the beginning of June, they will be closing. And so, not only am I a prophet, because I called it for the first time since 1979. Now, to put this in perspective, I was born in 1979. So for the first time in my lifetime, we will have a Broadway without an Andrew Lloyd Webber show.
1: Don, I'm going to need you to edit in some like massive cheers and trumpet sounds and like heralding joyous noises at this moment in the podcast, because that is the emotion I feel and that is the emotion the world should feel.
0: So let's ride that emotion. We are this week talking about the 1984 show Sunday in the Park with George with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by James Lapine.
1: Sunday in the Park with George opened on May 2nd, 1984 at the Booth Theater and closed on October 13th, 1985 after playing for 604 performances.
0: The show was directed by James Lapine with musical direction by Paul Gemignani. The original Broadway cast included Mandy Patinkin as George, Bernadette Peters as Dot and Marie, Barbara Byrne as the Old Lady and Blair Daniels, Dana Ivey as Yvonne and Naomi Eisen, and Charles Kimbrough as Jules and Bob Greenberg.
1: Sunday in the Park with George was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, but won only two for Best Scenic and Best Lighting Design. You have a mission, a mission to see.
0: Now I have one too, George. And we should have
1: have to fall.
0: White, a blank page or canvas. The challenge, bring order to the whole.
1: As George Seurat utters these lines, the blank canvas of the stage transforms into the setting of his famous painting, A Sunday Afternoon
0: on the Island of La Grande Jatte. George's mistress, Dot, is modeling for him in the hot sun of this early Sunday morning.
1: More people arrive at the park, including an old lady and her nurse. Their conversations are interrupted by a group of rowdy bathers, and George freezes them, turning them into the
0: subject of his first painting, Bathers at Asnières. The scene shifts suddenly to a gallery where this painting is on display. Jules, another artist, and Yvonne, his wife, Comment on George's lifeless work. In another transformation of the setting, Jules and Yvonne are suddenly on the island talking to George. As they depart, George
1: mollifies the frustrated Dot by promising to take her to the Follies that evening. Dot leaves and George approaches the old lady. George asks to draw her and we learn that she is George's mother. She refuses to be drawn.
0: At George's studio, George is working obsessively on a massive canvas while Dot gets ready for their evening. The two comment on the strange nature of their relationship. Dot is ready to go, but George chooses to stay in. He has to finish the hat. Dot leaves furious.
1: Later, again in the park, George is sketching a boatman. Dot enters now with Louis the baker. The people of the park go through their day with George watching, sketching, and commenting
0: on their actions. George approaches Dot and the two have a strained conversation about the grammar book Dot is using to teach herself to read and write.
1: Life in the park continues to unfold for its citizens, all the while George watches, comments, and sketches. Jules and Yvonne continue to offer commentary on the nature of George's work and how it is perceived how it moves further and further away from something that Jules can support.
0: Dot and George again cross paths, but before Dot can approach George, he slips away, leaving Dot to reflect on her previous relationship with George and her new one with Louis.
1: Time passes and a very pregnant Dot comes to George's studio. It is clear that George must be the father of Dot's child, but Dot announces that she and Louis are getting married and moving to America. George retreats behind his canvas, and the two argue about their failed relationship. They do not belong together.
0: Back in the park, the old lady finally agrees to sit for George to sketch her. The old lady longs for the old view of Paris, while George tells her to look for the beauty in it.
1: Louis, Dot, and their baby girl Marie arrive. George refuses to acknowledge the child as his own. He says that Louis will be able to care for her in ways that he cannot. He offers a weak apology to Dot, who leaves sadly.
0: Chaos builds in the park. The messiness of George's own life grows through the messiness of the lives of his subjects until the old lady calls out, Remember,
1: George. George takes control of his subjects and his art, pulling them into harmony. Slowly, all the characters transform into the scene of the finished painting, a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte.
0: Act two opens with all the characters of the painting frozen in place, complaining about how hot it is up in this painting that they are stuck in forever. We learn that George died suddenly at the age of 31.
1: We jump forward 100 years to 1984, where we meet the artist, George, Dot's great-grandson, who is unveiling his newest work, Chromalume No. 7 a light machine that offers a reflection on a Sunday afternoon on the
0: island of La Grande Jatte. George invites his 98-year-old grandmother, Marie, up onto the stage to help with the reveal of the Chromaloon. She shares her and George's family connection to George Surratt using Dot's grammar book with the notes about George's proof. George is skeptical. After a brief technical issue, Chromaloom number seven is unveiled.
1: At the reception, George bounces from conversation to conversation, reflecting that art isn't easy, but bit by bit, he has to put it together. Chromalooms and lasers won't pay for themselves. Initial reactions to George's work are mixed. Is he
0: repeating himself? After the reception, Marie lingers to speak to her mother's image in the painting. She worries about George. He arrives to take her home. Marie attempts to tell George about the importance of the legacy we create. As Marie drifts to sleep, George is left trying to make a connection to his family's past that he cannot.
1: Weeks later, Marie has died. George has been invited by the French government to do a presentation of Chromalume Number no. 7 on the island depicted in Surratt's painting.
0: George is adrift after Marie's death. He has turned down a commission. He is left with Dot's grammar book. He reads from the book and reflects on the similarities between himself and his great-grandfather. A vision
1: of Dot appears to George. She speaks to him as if he is her George. He confesses his doubts to Dot. Dot tells him that he must move on. She never worried if her choices were mistaken. The choosing was not.
0: George finds words on the back of the grammar book that his great-grandfather used to mutter to himself as he worked. Order. Design. Tension. Composition. Balance. Light. Harmony. As George speaks these words, the painting again forms behind him. Slowly, the
1: figures depart, leaving George on a blank canvas. Again, he reads. White. A blank page or canvas. His favorite. So many possibilities.
0: Dot, why did you write these words?
1: They are your words, George. The words you uttered so often when you worked. Order.
0: Design. Tension Composition Balance
1: Read this word. Harmony.
0: So much love in his words. Forever with his colors. How George looks. He can look forever.
1: What does he see?
0: His eyes so dark and shiny, so careful, so exact. That's going to be on my gravestone someday. I I'm, mean, I'm, <laughs> and, and and I know this is cliche, and I know I already warned you that we're going to be fanboying out, but the ending of this show, especially when we get to so it's interesting because act 1 and act 2 end similarly act 1 ends with sunday literally the song sunday which is the i mean it's the title song of the show in a sense but it's also one of the more recognizable songs from this show it's a fairly faithful reproduction at the end of act 2 there's there are a couple of differences But as opposed to a lot of shows, especially in the mega musical era of the eighties, where you have to have big splashy over the top endings, this show tapers. It's almost like a single flame that kind of just goes out at the end. And so we get through the song, we get to the very end and you hear White, a blank page or canvas, his favorite, so many possibilities. And then the last little horn call and the show ends. That's like, I tear up every time I see it because it's just so incredibly moving for me that it it, it becomes almost a lifeboat for me in some regards of my life, because it's, it is, it talks, you know, it's, it's this sentiment that there's always a choice. There's always going to be an opportunity somewhere. And, you know, that, that sticks with you. It's something to cling on to.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not even going to pretend to hide it. I cried 3 times just fucking writing this script. Now, <laughs> admittedly, I was also listening to the show while I was doing it, which gives it a little bit more impact, but like it's a it's a powerful show and I don't I I hope that it resonates with people who aren't artists and creative people specifically like you and I as much as it does, but it definitely is the type of show that for people who spend their lives trying to be artists and being creative people and deal with all the struggles that both Georges deal with resonates very strongly.
0: Well, and that's the thing that I, I appreciate most about this show is it's not necessarily about the struggle of an artist, of uh, the struggle uh, to create, or it, it's not just about an artist struggling to create his art. It's about someone Trying to find their place in the world, find the place where they're happy and fulfilled, but can also make a difference, you know. And it's the the in act two, there's actually a moment between George and his assistant while they're setting up the chroma room on the island, where his his assistant is actually leaving him because it he feels that he's wasting his time, he's wasting his life helping George recreate every chroma loom. And, and it's, you know, it gets into the whole concept of, am I repeating myself? Am I making new art? Am I making art at all? But you know, the conversation basically goes, I love you. I love working with you, but I need to find my voice. I need to find my place in the world. And while that's not the main catalyst, it is, it does provide a spark to George of that's what I need to be focusing on. Not in the moment. I need to be focusing on what can I do to make my difference, but what can I do to fulfill myself? You know, where am I going? Not just where have I been? And it just, it 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 grabs me. It just every
1: time. Yeah, I think, uh, correct me if I'm getting my shows out of line, but Sondheim also talks about this being like a very personally autobiographical show, right? yes yeah and it's i think it's good to put it in a historical context because this was his first show after merrily which we talked about was it this past february or two Februarys ago
0: i think it was two Februarys ago but i mean it's, the it's point told, yeah it was his it was his unmitigated disaster right it was his i don't know that i well to be fair after the disaster that was merrily he he was done. Yeah, he was he like, stopped. "Screw you guys, I'm going home." Um, and it wasn't after until after being encouraged by James Lapine, who was a close friend and collaborator. And you know the it, it's funny because if you look in Wikipedia and and the way they distill this down, it almost makes it sound trivial, but it they said. Quote, Lapine persuaded him to return to theatrical world after the two were inspired by a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte. They spent several days at the Art Institute of Chicago studying the painting. And it's like, oh, okay, well that, you know, but like, that's not just what it, I mean, it's it, it's kind of hard to describe, but some, and, and we always think of, of people like Sondheim being on for lack of a better term, this pedestal. They can do no wrong. They're there. They're these giants. They're these titans of the art form, not realizing that they have the same insecurities we do. And when you have something like Merrily We Roll Along that closes after 16 performances, the desire to continue is like, I get it. And if Sondheim had never picked up his pen again, I would get it. I would understand so just to say oh well they saw a painting and they were inspired to you know restart that that wasn't that I I feel like that kind of undersells it a bit this is a big deal this is Sondheim as George finding not only his place in his world but his place moving forward well it's also it's worth
1: talking about the origins for this story I feel like this year in particular a lot of the shows we've discussed have been based on previously existing materials, whether that's a movie or a book or an earlier play. This was an original idea. It was a purely mm-hmm. original idea that that Lapine and Sondheim came up with after days of reflection upon this, this artwork. And it's not like this reflection was them sitting there just looking at it going, isn't this nice? It was... You know, I have to imagine there were deep philosophical conversations about both of their lives and their art, but also it was looking at this painting with all of these many different and diverse characters. And if you haven't seen the painting before, just take a second, stop now, Google Island of Lagrange by George Surratt and, and look at the painting. And imagining now all of these different individuals as characters and as lenses through which you can examine life. I, when I wrote this script, I very intentionally kind of glossed over all the the detailed interactions between all the various characters in the painting, because they're a little bit secondary to George's through line and, and story. But in, in the full show, these are well fleshed out, people, or at least how George imagines them as people living detailed lives that all reflect in some way on everything that George is going through.
0: Oh, absolutely. And actually, one of the things that he does exceptionally well, he being Sondheim, not he being George, is that he does give each character their moment. By the end of the act, you know, and you understand Everyone who's on stage. Yes, like you said, the Georgian dot through line is the primary one. And so there is a bit of a veil of we're seeing some of these people through their lens, which actually adds a bit to the story. Because again, Seurat as artist, as creator of this work, this is how he would have viewed them you know the 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 fact that the old woman just happens to be his mother which is something we don't find out right away you know it it, again he sees her as model he sees her as something to capture in art and it's not until later that we find out oh no she actually is more to that than than he lets on at first it it just it really is just fleshed out exceptionally well
1: yeah Uh, You you can help me historically contextualize this point, because you you just are better about knowing these kinds of things than I am. I don't know if this is just becoming more popular, or if I'm just letting Hamilton color my entire worldview, but it seems like the idea of characters in Act One, or actors in Act One returning in Act Two as different people that are somehow a foil or reflection of the, the character that they played in Act One is... Kind of popular right now, but I feel like this is one of the earlier shows to actually do that on such an intense scale with pretty much everyone in this show playing someone else in act two.
0: Oh, yeah, and 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 to be fair, this everyone in this show, with the exception of actually, no, I take that back literally, everyone in this show has a separate character that they play in act two. Like that's just, that is, that is how it is. I've been sitting on this question for a couple of days and kind of looking. I can't find, this is not a common thing. This is not a this common thing. Tra- okay, so it's no. just in my head right now. So I have just let Hamilton skew my entire well, no, world let me, let me No, let me rephrase. It, is not, it was not a common thing at the time. Okay. I do think it is a bit more common now. I don't know that I would call it commonplace per se, as much as thinking back to a couple of shows that we've talked about recently, where we have people doing this Greek chorus idea of taking, stepping out of a chorus, stepping out of an ensemble to take a role, stepping back, and then stepping out later to to do something else. I feel like we have that other than. Hamilton and this I can't think of many shows where you literally are playing a completely different person act 1 to act 2 and there there are shows out there I'm I'm not saying that this has never happened before and these are the only two shows in existence that do that but it's unique in that sense uh to the point where I can think of older shows out there that probably could have benefited from um and, and for some reason the first thing that popped in my mind was gypsy where mm. you have people who are in like important characters who are in three or four scenes in act one and then they go away and we never see him again Tulsa right. baby uh baby June um you know these are characters that disappear you know two-thirds of the way through act one and then we never see the actor again or the character again or anything and that's fine so I guess in a way I, I, I applaud Sondheim and Lepine for doing something like this where they could switch them over and it kind of gives it a a bit of a bookend even though I, I would argue in act two when we're in the art gallery that these characters have a little bit less of a fleshed out backstory that than they do in act one when they're subjects of the painting you get to know them enough that they're not just stock characters you do get ideas from them you do get you know whether it's as simple as what they're talking about and, you know, do they like George's art? Do they not? Do they like how he's acting? Do they not? Act two still does a good job of fleshing that out.
1: Yeah. uh, I think act two is also, uh, how do I put this? I feel like there are more questions in act one for that George. Whereas act two, George pretty much has one existential crisis that he's dealing with. And so the characters around him don't have to be as complex because they don't have to be helping him deal with as many things.
0: I think that's a fair statement, especially if you want to look at Act Two George being the, for lack of a better term, modern analog of Act One George. And as a consequence, some of his journey, some of his turmoil, some of his, for lack of a better term, existential crises almost transfer over to a degree and so he has the benefit of we don't need to really build him up like we do in act one because we have the benefit of act one to kind of serve as that placeholder while it's not exactly him it's easy enough to transfer over
1: yeah i'm going to shift gears again i want to take a second and say uh you know i don't Always love Bernadette Peters' performances. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I just she she has a very particular voice. Agreed. And she kind of does a very particular thing. And I've I've seen her live in certain roles. I've not seen her in a Sondheim show live. Um, and I I don't always love it, but I th- I think her performance in this show is great. I think she fits into the character of Dot and uh, who is, Marie. It? is it Marie. Yeah, Marie, as j- just really, really, really well. And I think the qualities in her performances that I tend to find grading in other settings actually are played to very strongly in these roles.
0: I agree. And I will say I am also of mixed feelings about Bernadette Peters. I think for a lot of what you just said, I think what separates this from some of the other roles she does is like you said, she's big, she's bold, she she is, she is the the Patty Lapone archetype, which again is someone I have mixed feelings about, where she can walk on a stage and command it, which is Great, and I am not. I am not bad mouthing that at all. That is a skill that is not easily taught. And when someone like a Patti lapone or a Bernadette Peters has it natively, it is it is something you need to sit up and take notice about. And I I am not in any way arguing that Bernadette Peters is not a quality actress, but she is. Where I find my frustration in some of her characterizations is they come off in one as one note in the regard to they're big, they're bold, and they're declamatory. And that, again, is fine, but like so much of life, especially so much of music, so much of music theater... Life is, it, it's about the duality. It's about hard and soft, loud and soft, sound and silence, color and lack. You know, there, there's always a duality oh, so to close. it. You almost had color and light right there. You were did. so, you were so I close. I did. I did. Yep. Okay. You're right. Do it again. One, no, I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think I appreciate about this role is it's one of the few times, at least in my experience with her performances, where she goes out of her way to experience and explore the softer side. Dot is not a bold, brassy character. Dot has her own trauma. Dot has her own problems and her own insecurities. And one of the things I really, really appreciate Bernadette Peters' portrayal of Dot is that she explores those. She she gives us a sincere portrayal of those doubts, those insecurities, that pain. You know, I mean, you feel like at the end of Act One, when she is leaving George, she is going to America with Louis, that it is the most painful and heartbreaking choice that she has made in her life and to be fair james lapine no slouch in writing scripts like the uh, credit goes to james lapine here as well but for bernadette peters to to portray just that raw emotion in the way she does makes me sit up and, and really pay attention my only quibble my only quibble with Bernadette Peters in this role is that she always sings with a soloist tone. Now, when she's singing, We Do Not Belong Together, or Move On, or Everyone Loves Louis," yes, that's what you have to do. But, damn it, I can pick her voice out of every rendition of Sunday at the end of act one and at the end of act two, because she has no concept of how to blend with the rest of the ensemble in those songs. And that's where I get just frustrated. Cause I'm like, this is a beautiful portrayal. Back off just a little bit. It's okay. It really is. And I don't need to hear your voice every time when you're singing with the sopranos in this mass sound. And I know that's silly and I know that's childish on my part, but it's one of the few things that irks me about her performance. It may be the only thing that irks me about a performance in this show. Other than that, 9.9 out of 10, no additional notes. I mean, I think that's fair. <laughs> I mean, and it's funny because I have the same issues with Manny Patinkin. I mean, it, it, it really is. This is one of the, this is probably one of two roles where I'm like Mandy fan all the way everything else I could take or leave but this in Evita for some reason I'm like I'm there I'm I am there for you Mr. Mm. Patinkin Mm.
1: I have less issues with him
0: yeah some people I, I find he's love or hate and and that's fine that's okay so as as is our want even though I mean again i've professed we have professed that we love this show this show does have a couple of problems not major problems but some problems and it really starts with the beginning of act two so as we talked about in the rundown we get through george and dot's trials tribulations dot is leaving george calls order out of chaos Then we we get through Sunday, Act 1 ends, and you're like, okay, that's a nice button for Act 1 to end. The curtain for Act 2 comes up, and we're looking at the exact same thing. Because now we have the Act 2 opener, it's hot up here, which is, at least in my head canon, has always been, now this is the painting, it's the characters in the painting Complaining about how hot it is in the painting, but I don't know that we're necessarily on the island anymore. And I get that the purpose is, is, is in a way it's supposed to kind of serve somewhat as an on-track to get us back into the into the, to the show and then lead us into this little epilogue where some of the characters step forward and talk about, you know, Surat dying at 31 and never reconciling with dot and then it shuffles us 100 years later into the gallery you had some thought about thoughts about this that really put things in context and i want you to talk about that for a moment
1: well yeah i mean you're absolutely right it does feel kind of out of place but in my mind how i've always pictured it being done is yeah you're right it is absolutely the painting but you you put the painting where it is The Art Institute of Chicago and we get it's hot up here and as we transition out of that little scene we're moving into this world where the Chromaloon number seven is being presented and the whole point of the Chromaloon is that it's meant to be an homage and reflection to this painting so you use the painting as the backdrop and we are now in the Art Institute of Chicago so it transitions from being the painting with the characters in it to the characters coming out and it just being the painting. And now we're all standing in front of the painting, watching Chromaloom number no. seven be displayed, performed. I don't, it's hard for me to imagine what Chromaloom number no. seven is. I know, I've, I mean, I've seen various productions, but it's, you know, <laughs> contemporary art's so weird, John, how is one meant to understand it? But I, now I, there's that kind of through line that connects the scenes as opposed to this one little tiny vignette that really just feels like a plot device.
0: Yeah, and and I don't know what art is, but I know it when I see it is is the the bastardization of that generic phrase that everyone seems to apply to everyone. And I actually, you know, when you when you when you mentioned that a couple of days ago when we were we were kind of prepping for this a little bit, it blew my mind because I've always had a hard time reconciling this act two opening with the rest of the show. And I love that idea. I think it's fantastic and it actually works as a natural bridge into the rest of act two because act two really is about as different from act one as you can get in the sense that it is I mean let's be honest act two is two scenes long. They just happen to be two massive ginormous scenes and that first scene with being in the the art gallery where you go from state of the art to bit by bit. I don't want to put the label on it, but it's it's operatic in nature is what it is. Because yes, you can excerpt songs from this bit by bit, putting it together, um, state of the art. These are songs that are excerptable, but the scene opens and then the scene closes, and it's this this through line of music all the way through that we see so rarely in music theater. And it works exceptionally well because it's not belabored. One of the things that Sondheim does, in my mind, that separates him from so many other theater composers, is he has the ability to reuse and replay thematic ideas without them being overwrought, overdone to the point where you hate them. Except in Into the Woods, but yes. Well, I was gonna say, with the <laughs> with the exception of Into the Woods, but even there, other than bum, 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 bum. bum that, like, I know God. that bothered you and I know that bothered you when we talked about it, but it bothered me much less. And, and, and I know we talked about that and I'm not going to relitigate it here, but like, this is something that is, if you think about it, a through process throughout so much of Sondheim's work that we probably don't discuss enough. And like here for, for Sunday in the park, there, there are several ideas. There's, there's always these horn calls, show starts with it. There are several uses in act one, ends with it, ends the show with it, that is used fairly heavily. But again, I'm never sick of it. I'm never, it's never overwrought to me. And so this scene in act two, that the, the the gallery scene, it is really just two songs interspersed with each other for probably a good 20 minutes. Like the entire scene is pretty long. I want to say it's it's 20, 25 minutes long and it's just music and music and music. I never get sick of it. I never get tired of it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It, th- this one does not hit me in any way like, like Into the Woods. Not not that Into the Woods is bad. It's just that one little sticking point for me, which is right. the thing that like only somebody as asinine as me would be bothered by. It, it, no, it's, I mean, it's just so, it just feels so smart. Like the shift between act one, which does not in any way feel dated, but does feel appropriate to like the 1880s versus the shift to act two, which even though it is wholly connected and very much of the same cloth suddenly feels like a present day contemporary sense it's 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 just great also how i mean how clever is that fucking title state of the art i mean the double meaning there is just so wonderful
0: right oh and the word i mean the i don't think anyone has ever questioned you know stephen sondheim's wordplay but in this show especially it's on point like it's very good it it really is the lyrics for this show in general are brilliant I mean, they're heartfelt, they're heart wrenching. There is repetition to a degree, but only in the sense that it, there's repetition in the way Sondheim does repetition, which is, you know, light sprinklings. It's funny because we have talked, we've talked about several Sondheim shows at this point. And the closest show I can think of to this would probably be for me, Little Night Music. But even then, I feel like. It's not just about telling the story. It's telling the story with a certain framing device. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the difference between the shows and why this show speaks to me so much more than that one is that Sondheim doesn't feel like he needs to use a framing device in this show. It's all about art. It's all about emotion. It's all about music. And while he writes at the same high level Ultimately, this show just is about people. There's no framing of a device to that. There's no narrative beyond that. It is about these people, how they interact with each other, how they affect each other, and how they change each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I know this is definitely a bucket list show for both of us. Yeah. I, it, I, mean,
0: I, I It's very easy to say that. I mean, I would... You know, it's funny because we've talked about this a million different times in a very million different episodes, and every time someone asks me, you know, it's it's that old joke. Well, what's your favorite show? And I, you know, it's always, well, it depends. What are we talking about? Are we talk about blah, or blah, or blah, or blah, blah, or blah, and so on and so forth. Or if I want to get become like a real smart ass and someone asked me, well, what's your favorite show? I'll say, well, what show am I working on right now? That's my favorite show because that, that, that's a, that's a Piermont 2 thing that is always stuck by me and just for its sheer smartassery that I've always loved. If you put my feet over the fire and said, what is your favorite show? I would still obfuscate a little bit because I don't You'd know that- you say could... West
1: Side Story. Don't well, lie, John. See,
0: I don't know. Like I have a hard time choosing between West Side Story and Sunday in the Park with George because they speak to different things in me. Ultimately, at the end of the day, West Side Story speaks to my love of the art, my love of the music, and, you know, just what Bernstein was able to do to to make that just something that holds my attention for two, two and a half hours. This, however speaks to me in a very different way because it speaks to me in a very personal way everyone who is a musician everyone who is an artist everyone who is out there trying to find their way doing something has felt like george has everyone out there who feels like at times they need to give up because it's never going to happen or at least in their mind that's what their head is telling them feels what Sondheim was going through. This show speaks to me. I love this show. I resonate with this show because on so many levels, I am George. On so many levels, I am Dot. And I feel like that transfers for so many different people. I'm in love with this show because, in a way, it's partially telling my story. And, you know, I I joked about at the very beginning of this episode that I'm jokingly going to put white, a blank page or canvas, his favorite, so many possibilities on my gravestone. But it sticks with me because it's a lifeboat at times. That while I may not see, or people may not see, what's coming next that something can come next because there are so many possibilities out there. And so yes, West Side story speaks to me on so many ways. So does this one. And so if you had to, if I had to pick a favorite show, it's gonna be those two. Again, because I can't choose just one because god damn it, why make any portion of my life easy? That and ultimately that at the end of the day, that's what it is. Art is supposed to speak to you. And then I think that's what, you know, that's what Sondheim and George are trying to say. Art has to speak to you. Art has to transform you. And that's what this does. It speaks to me. It transforms me. And that's why it's on my bucket list. That's why it is one of my absolute favorite shows. And I hope someday I'm going to get to do this show. Like, like you know, I, I always joke about, well, this show's on my bucket list and that show's on my bucket list. If I don't get to it by the end of my time get to do this show I I will be a little sad because I this show speaks to me and I I want to do this show to speak back so John
1: <laughs> normally yes. this is the part of the show where I ask you to recommend a recording and I'm going to do that but I want to before we get to a recording I want to say because so much of this show is actually about visual art. If you have the time, it's worth seeing this show. I know the original Broadway production was filmed and is released, I own the DVD. I don't know if it's accessible anywhere more contemporary other than a DVD for folks, but are there any other productions, complete productions that you would recommend people seek out to watch?
0: There are, so there were three major productions of this show. There was the original 1984 cast with Mandy Patinkin and uh, Bernadette Peters. There was also the 2006 London revival with Daniel Evans and Jenna Russell. Then in 2017, there was a revival on Broadway with Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalie Ashford. It is my understanding now, whether you can continue to find all of these legal or not, I'm not here. I'm not the Broadway police. I am not the recording police. At one point, all three had videos that were publicly and legally available. All three of them bring very different things to the table. I can't recommend one over the other. All three are worth seeing. Simple as that. My personal favorite is the Jake Gyllenhaal production. I just, I love it. Yeah. I actually really love what he brings to the character of George. I also love what they did with the set in that. And it's funny because this show is so abstract in the sense of what you can do with it. All three productions visually are very, very different. And so they each bring their own things to the table. I, I, I would say if you have the ability find all three. I know that there are legal clips from all three on YouTube to at least, if nothing else, give you a sense. So if you go to YouTube and type in Sunday in the Park with George, you will find clips from the 84, the 2006, and the 2017 versions. And I highly recommend seeing all three.
1: Can you be any more picky with just a recording if people are going to listen?
0: Yeah, you got to go with the 2017 recording. That is not Not to take away. It is, and again, that is not to take away from the 1984 or the 2006 versions. One of the things that I appreciate about this show and its two major revivals is the consistency in staying true to James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim's intention. One of the things, I mean, love or hate revivals one of the things that so many revivals try to do, especially in current time, is there's a bit of a reinve- reinvention. What can we do to make this show stand out? What can we do to modernize this show? What can we do to make this show better? And sometimes it works out exceptionally well. Thinking about the original 70s production of Pippin, which was fantastic. And then the revival in the 2010s that came out Uh, reinventing it into more of a circus atmosphere. The leading player was changed from male identifying to female identifying. That was one of the few steps where I was like, hey, this is a revival that took it in a brand new direction, but made it better. Other shows have been, in my opinion, at least for my personal enjoyment, less successful. Chorus Line, I thought, was the quintessential rock Broadway opera and then they did the revival and they they went a little bit more esoteric with the orchestrations and i'm like hmm this feels like a step back because they were trying to reinvent they were trying to change and i feel like some of them they changed for the sake of change and in it, it you know it it resulted in a product that i didn't enjoy as much however getting to the actual point one of the things that i've appreciated from the 84 to the 2006 to the 2017 is they are not interested in reinventing the show they are interested in streamlining in little tweaks here and there to make the show better but also tell the original story better and so there were big leaps from the 84 to the 2006 if you listen to the orchestration That they, just little things here and there, they change to give it a little bit more warmth, to give it a little bit more depth. And then again, from 2006 to 2017, I feel at this point, the orchestrations for the 2017 version are the absolute pinnacle of what this show can be. And to make no bones about it, this is probably one of the hardest orchestra setups I've seen for any show written in the last 30 40 years these books are hard these books are incredibly difficult and you need good quality professional players to do this show justice and and the resulting sound in the 2017 production just as oh, i guess that's ultimately what makes the tiebreaker for me it's it just it's the warmest sound it's the most in-depth sound it's the one that serves the story the most
1: uh so i haven't listened to the 2017 production it's some something <laughs> i'll have to do so I, I have to ask the question does the end of act one horn still skyrocket up into the stratosphere mm-hmm. okay good all right then they fine. It- then i'll allow they- it
0: the only time they change it is the 2006 2006 changes the call the bop bop it's um end of act one it's muted trumpet Mm. and then end of act two it's the horn down the octave right which does not lessen any of the effectiveness at all but for those of you in the know it's one of those if you know you know act one and act two actually end with these clarino extraordinarily high end of the register in the horn only up two octaves basically from where I sang it it's and it comes out of nowhere so the player isn't playing like the player has several bars of rest beforehand so they're coming into it not necessarily cold but they don't get to, to to play into it and if it's off it's immediately apparent you can't hide. There's no place to hide. There's no place to gum it. Um, and I've, I've seen productions where, bless their heart, it's like they've ghosted it in or just it wasn't happening that night and their, their, their lips weren't, you know, their embouchure wasn't perfect and it just, it didn't nail it. And it's just, it's, it's tough. It's hard. Um, but no, the 2017 does restore it, restore it. It's horn both times and up the octave both times.
1: Nice. Sunday White A blank page Or canvas His favorite So many POSSIBILITIES.
0: Well, that should just about do it for this episode.
1: If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical
0: M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautix.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.